Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. It is the week of December 14th, and welcome to a special podcast of NSI Live, where we will explore some of the latest developments in our competition with China. I'm your host, Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow for this special edition of NSI Live. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Dr. Robin Cleveland, Chairwoman of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Commission. Following up on our last special episode, talking with NSI experts about their reactions to the Commission's annual report, we wanted to talk with the people who actually have worked on this report over the last year. Chairwoman Cleveland, I think commendations are in order for the commission, a bipartisan report on many difficult issues in what seems to be a very nasty time in our nation's political life. Congratulations to you. How did you do it? Well, we have a fantastic staff and uh, I have extraordinarily talented colleagues. And I think one of the things about the commission that, that I've been so pleased and, and really proud of is the fact that we consistently produce a bipartisan report of six Democrats, six Republicans uh, nominated by the leaders in Congress. And year in and year out, we work through our differences, um, painstaking detail, uh, but it really is a tribute to the, the quality of the staff and my colleagues. So let's let's get right into the, the report and, and the work you guys did. You uh, have called China an adversary of the United States and say it is an economic and security threat to our country. Is this a bigger challenge than the West had with the old Soviet Union? We are off to a tough question. Um, I think they're different challenges. I think that the Soviet Union presented a, a security threat, but not necessarily an economic one. Whereas I think China presents both a security and economic threat because of the nature of the integrated um, economies. And I think that that over the course of the last, last decade, where investment has increased in China, uh, global investments increased in China, and China has gone out into the world, that integration has been positive in some ways. Um, and I certainly welcome free market principles when it comes to investment. But it has also um, been complicated, as you know well from your considerable experience, by a lack of transparency and accountability when it comes to lending, uh, a lack of uh, transparency and accountability when it comes to their involvement in international organizations. And so I think I think China is both an economic and a security threat, whereas I think the Soviet Union represented a, a, a principally a security threat. So the, the commission uh, in the report highlighted China's desire to export its authoritarian governmental model. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what that conversation was like with your fellow commissioners? Well, it's interesting you, you raise that. Uh, so Senator Talent and, Car- uh, and Goodwin uh, chaired that hearing, and uh, they felt that there was this new sense of um, uh, when they were developing the agenda, they uh, felt that there was a, an approach that China was taking in terms of exporting technology so that critics in other countries uh, could be silenced by their government uh, when it came to Uh, manipulating and uh, undercutting and hollowing out international institutions that set standards for commercial and economic conduct. And so they really, they wanted to explore how China has uh, in over the last decade sort of moved into a space where the way they run their own country, the CCP runs uh, China, they are trying to expand that model. And 
uh, particularly in Africa. So that's what we took a look at. And you use the term digital authoritarianism. Is that mm -hmm. what you were referring to? Yeah. Um, so particularly when it comes to, to uh, uh, countries in Africa, we've seen, for example, um, Huawei has been deeply involved in, um, in setting up smart city technology in Uganda. And what that means is facial recognition technology, um, uh, the kind of surveillance that we've seen in uh, Xinjiang uh, is being exported to, to countries in Africa so that, that the leadership there can, can begin to do the same kind of uh, things in terms of silencing dissent and opposition. So that kind of authoritarian um, model is of tremendous concern. It would seem like uh, developing countries would be more vulnerable to this, this kind of model than uh, more developed Western-oriented countries. But China's had some uptake with some of our traditional allies too, hasn't mm -hmm. it? Yes, it has. We've seen, we, although I think, I think we're seeing a turn uh, on that front. But yes, certainly um, with BRI, the, the, their, their BRI initiative, we started to see in um, some of the, uh, some countries in Europe and, and uh, a, an interest in the kind of investment that would support the telecommunications sector. But I think the, the CCP has really overplayed its hand um, in the COVID crisis and threatened and bullied and, and made demands that, that we've started to see um, a shift in how uh, countries in Europe, Africa, and Latin America, and Asia are responding to the CCP. And so I'm hopeful in the coming uh, years that we will begin to see a sort of a realignment of, of interest that uh, check this, this move to techno-authoritarianism and, and uh, expansion of, of China's role. You know, there's been some news reported just recently, uh, I'm thinking of the Wall Street Journal, about how the, the Xi Jinping administration in China is moving back towards a state-controlled model of, the, of their mm -hmm. economy, moving mm -hmm. away from entrepreneurialism and capitalism, which is, of course, what led to the big boom in mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese economy. Do you, do you think, based on, on the work you've done with the commission, uh, that, that the Chinese are making a huge mistake here and could be uh, limiting their effectiveness in the long run by doing that? That's a superb question, and it, it, it really is central to uh, uh, my thinking and concerns. Um, Yes, the short answer is I, the, the, they, the role that the state is playing in the economy is intensifying. I'm not sure that there was ever really a free market, but there were certainly um, growing small and medium-sized enterprises that, that you know, we see at the beginning of any kind of major economic uh, development. But the state control over the economy is really worrying. And what you've seen in the last several years, and particularly accelerating under, under Xi, is uh, debt has exploded uh, from six to nearly $40 trillion. You're seeing an increase in non-performing loans. You're seeing the use, abuse, I might say, of collateralized debt obligations backed by really shaky assets. There are double standards when it comes to making credit available. So large 
unproductive state-owned enterprises are being injected with capital, whereas more productive and uh, smaller and medium enterprises that actually employ most people are starved for capital. And I think if, if this sounds familiar, it's very much the scenario that we faced in 2008. So uh, in terms, and, and I think that the risks are really, really significant in China. Um, I think that the, the weakness in the financial system is really why you're seeing aggressive moves abroad, because I think China's trying to shore up those state-owned enterprises by moving them out into other countries. And they, in essence, are exporting their risks. So let's get into uh, some of the, the technical um, uh, issue areas as, as far as the, the business community is concerned. Mm-hmm. China's deeply interested in international technical standards mm-hmm. and is using global bodies to advance their desire to control the way these, these standards are, are formulated and then issued. Mm-hmm. You've recommended in the, in the commission, you've recommended creating an interagency technical standards committee Mm-hmm. of U.S. government agencies and departments to counter this. Can you talk about that recommendation? Sure. Um, that came out, came out of the, uh, the hearing that uh, Senators Talent and Goodwin um, shared. Uh, they felt that, that Chinese moves in organizations like the ITU and, um, uh, and at the UN um, were compromising the 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 role that commercial standards um, have played to advance um, growth. So uh, the proposal to have this senior um, level working group uh, is an attempt to to um, bring together all the different agencies, whether it's FDA or the Defense Department in a working group to try to advance standards that serve commercial interests around the world. Um, an interesting development we saw and, and pointed to was that, um, that China is using its role in these international organizations um, to advance its political agenda, uh, to advance uh, its, its interest in uh, everything from human rights to, to uh, economic interests. So historically we have left to our companies to advocate for standards, whether it, as I said, whether it comes to it's telecom or uh, food and safety, we've left that to our commercial enterprises. China's had a whole of government approach and has populated these institutions with, with uh, party members who are interested in promoting Chinese standards, which, which undercut the, um, the free market principles. So do you, do you think that we've, we've reached the point where American businesses and, and perhaps, you know, the uh, businesses originating in other Western uh, advanced economies need help from the government to meet this challenge from China? How would you characterize help? But I think, I think the answer to that is yes. I think that there needs to be more effective coordination between our agencies and, and political leaders and uh, and, and companies to ensure that we not only have successful markets here at home, but that we, that we collaborate and coordinate and have common standards around the world that don't cut American companies, European companies, and other companies out of competition. Ultimately, the CCP's goal is to set standards around the world so that 
um, their companies win contracts and uh, their companies and, and Chinese employees overseas uh, are, are, are benefiting. And we're not interested in skewing the markets. We're just interested in having fair markets. So another newsmaking recommendation of the commission was to expand the powers of the Federal Trade Commission Mm -hmm. to examine the extent of Chinese government subsidies of companies that operate in the United States. Can you tell us about the commission's concerns in this area? Sure. So, uh, as you know, um, large state enterprises are heavily subsidized with both uh, uh, financial as as well as um, political support. So, uh, whether it's being provided with land, tax benefits, um, free electricity, water services, um, and then championed by the government with, with huge subsidies. I mean, I think it's a, a noteworthy that China has put together a, uh, over a trillion dollars in various venture capital funds to support technology development in China. So I think it's only reasonable to assume that if a company is subsidized in a way that, that gives it an advantage, that ought to be taken into account in a transparent way when there are mergers and acquisitions in the United States. And if that subsidy is given the company an advantage or a benefit that a competitor might not have, the FTC, we've suggested authorities that would give the FTC the right to take that into consideration when it comes to pre-merger notifications and uh, take action to potentially curb or, or uh, suspend the, the transaction. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk about education issues and the, <laughs> the huge numbers of Chinese students in the United States uh, mm-hmm. going to college and graduate school. Should, mm-hmm. should we consider putting a moratorium on Chinese students studying uh, in the STEM area, science, technology, uh, and mathematics? The commission didn't reach that conclusion. Um, we, we spent a lot of time and we, you know, we issued a paper a couple of months ago talking about the nature of, of a part of the, the threat, which is when PLA, the uh, People's Liberation Army or uh, other security parts of the government essentially have cast their net far and wide, both in terms of, of sending students to the United States and supporting them, and then encouraging uh, students to come home. And I think, I think at this point, we are about raising awareness uh, making sure that universities understand the risks inherent in relationships, uh, uh, whether it's research partnerships or, or bringing students over from China. I think it would be unfair at this point to, to have a moratorium when there are students in good standing who um, are contributing important um, work to, to research initiatives to just suddenly ban everybody. But I do think awareness is, is um, or the education uh, process is necessary. And last year, we suggested that the FBI reestablish their uh, partnership with universities to, to support um, improved understanding on what students, what research projects, and what faculty um, uh, projects represent a risk to U.S. national security. But we did not get to the place where we said a moratorium was was necessary. So uh, China is seeking to dominate, explicitly so, dominate certain economic sectors, semiconductors, Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, 
quantum mechanics, mm -hmm. rare earth materials and minerals, uh, the list goes on. And China appears to be engaged in massive intellectual property theft across the globe in, mm -hmm. uh, as one of its methods of achieving dominance in these areas. Mm -hmm. Talk about the commission's work in that area and some of the recommendations you came up with. So it's, it's an iterative process. We obviously don't cover the same uh, areas each year. We sort of pick it, and Africa was very much on our agenda this year. Um, last year, we did talk about rare earths and suggested that um, the U.S. government uh, conduct a study of where, because rare earths are, are not necessarily rare, the processing process is, is um, the challenge. But we suggested uh, GPS do a study on uh, what the potential sources are for rare earths. We also looked at semiconductors and AI last year and recommended that uh, Congress pass a provision that would support innovation and research to get companies from um, the stage where they are developing uh, new ideas, whether it's semiconductor AI or quantum, but they've got great new ideas, but commercializing them takes time. So we suggested that, that um, a tax credit be restored for that, what's called the valley of death between research and commercialization. Um, I think you're right to say China's invested, I think it's close to 1.5 trillion at this point in terms of accelerating investment. But I think it's also important to point out that they still can't develop basic semiconductors, that they're struggling with the technology. And so I think the United States is in a good position to maintain its, um, its, its strong position in these areas. But I think we need to be mindful of Chinese efforts to continue on this path, a longstanding path of, of um, what they can't gain by cooperation by theft. Uh, some folks have suggested that the U.S. And, and other Western countries go as far as having governments, uh, you know, democracies, democratic governments, invest directly in some of our high-tech companies, so as to help direct them to be more competitive with mm -hmm. uh, the state-supported Chinese companies. What what does the commission think of that concept? We we talked a little bit about this in the report last year. I think I. I I would be the commission did not reach a conclusion on designating specific sectors or you know whether it was was uh, semiconductors or or um, AI. We identified them as high priorities in enabling technologies that will be critical to innovation in the future. And clearly, China is targeting those areas, uh, and so we need to be mindful of that. But we didn't reach any conclusions on should the government subsidize directly U.S. production in those areas or U.S. Um, innovation and, and production. You know, we, we, as I said, we continue to be world leaders when it comes to um, technology and innovation. And I think part of that is the fact that we have a very free and open system that encourages uh, the best in collaboration. So uh, we, we talked about a little bit earlier the, the Belt and Road Initiative. I, mm -hmm. I want to read part of the report to you that mentions uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, if I, uh, if I may. Mm -hmm. The Chinese government's Belt and Road Initiative is both a blueprint and a testbed for establishing a Sinocentric world order. Mm -hmm. The initiative has no membership protocols or formal rules, but is based on informal agreements and a network of bilateral deals with China as the hub and other countries as the spokes. Mm -hmm. 
This framework lets Beijing act arbitrarily and dictate the terms as the stronger party, unquote. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's the best way for the West to respond to this, this BRI model? Well, I think I should turn that around and ask you because you are, you are an expert when it comes to, to foreign assistance. I think, I think the, the, and we, I'd be curious at your answer on this, but I think uh, we probably agree that transparency and accountability uh, should be the watchwords. And I think the more um, that, that the China model has shifted from simply buying commodities like platinum and cobalt and uh, vanadium and, and uh, copper and chrome, the more they've shifted from simply buying those commodities to now owning the mines and the manufacturing and processing capabilities, the more uh, I think we're seeing um, countries, particularly in Africa, respond with with concern. Um, the lending that's gone on, uh, I think 24 of 50 countries that that um, uh, 24 countries out of the 50 that, that China lends to are in Africa, and there is no transparency to that lending. Uh, we just saw an appeal by many countries to suspend uh, debt payments next year because of the COVID shock, and China was singularly unwilling to negotiate on a, on a transparent basis with the World Bank, or the IMF, um, new terms or suspension of that debt. So I think the BRI model um, has allowed for this bilateral bullying. And I think the more education and awareness that, that folks like you do and um, through foreign assistance networks, uh, the better, because then people recognize there's a common problem, a common threat, and that we can collaborate uh, when it comes to, to supporting um, that transparency. I mean, if you think back, uh, I'm sure you're aware of the case in Burma, where, uh, again, the Chinese were putting a lot of pressure on Burma on building a port in Chakyu, and AID stepped in and was very, very helpful with the te- technical support necessary to reduce the costs and improve the terms of the lending. Does that answer your question? It was sort of a... This yeah, is I think... Yeah, no, it's 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 a great issue, um, and and to be to be totally honest, I hope next year the commission maybe takes a, a deeper dive on some of these issues. I think it's under just my personal view that it's a little bit underappreciated in the aid community mm-hmm. how much of a threat this Chinese model and what China's doing in the developing world is to our existing programs. You know, by right. not having transparency and accountability in their programs doing all this lending, it, it directly undermines the, the money that we're spending in those same countries. You know, once, right. a, once a country has a debt burden uh, and, and China's demanding they pay back, suddenly they're, they're going to be less willing to work with us on the issues that we think are, are important to our values and our interests. It seems like this is, a, this, is, this is a really big problem for our classic economic development model. It is. And, and I could not agree with you more. I mean, I, I think... You know, we want to see open bidding. We want to see um, transparency on projects. And we're just not seeing that in terms of how the CCP chooses to invest. And, and uh, you know, that it, it, you and I have both been through the wars when it comes to debt relief. Um, we went through HIPIC and MDRI and, uh, and helped clear the slate of, of the heavy burden of debt on the poorest countries in the world. And the objective of those initiatives was not to open the space for for the CCP to come in with, with loans that, 
we don't know what the terms are and we don't know the, the, the interest rates. The goal to free these countries of these uh, the significant debt was, was not to allow for Chinese free riding. And uh, it, is of, it is of tremendous concern. That said, I also think it's a space for opportunity because I, as I said, the more aware, the more we have these conversations and one country recognizes that what's happening there is in terms of their, their uh, resources and um, uh, their, their growth potential is being compromised by, by this, this approach, uh, this Chinese approach, um, the more they are likely to collaborate and the more that we can help. You know, you know the, the truth better than I, that we're never going to compete with the amount of money that China puts on the table. That's just, that's not going to happen. But if we work with our European partners in structuring bids so that they're transparent and accountable, um, we have a better chance of, of trying to strike a balance when it comes to how the CCP is venturing out in the world. Well, we have to we have to build in a huge role for our private sector uh, mm-hmm. because then we then we can compete and win. I think on on the uh, size of the economic investment in a country. Uh, but I also, at, at the risk of getting a little political here, I, it seems to me one of the virtues of the Trump administration was that they were willing folks there were willing to tackle the threat from China in a new way. Not mm-hmm. that not not necessarily that everything worked perfectly, but they were willing to kind of turn the ship around and try a different direction. Mm-hmm. Some of the things I think that the administration was trying were quite productive. One of them, even though the name is not that great, uh, was Clear Choice, which came out of USAID, mm-hmm. uh, which really tried to put a um, kind of an intellectual construct around the way to meet the challenge of China's BRI model in developing countries. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, we should really be looking for from the, from the new Biden administration is their willingness to kind of pick up that initiative, refine it perhaps, put, put their own stamp on it, but keep it going and find a way to, to really grapple in a smart way with this, with this new challenge. I think that, that um, I, we've all been very careful in the commission not to, to speak to or provide recommendations for the incoming administration. Um, I, I do think it's worth noting that, that, you know, as a commission of, that is bipartisan and one of the few remaining bipartisan voices in, in Washington, um, that, that it, uh, it, uh, we have, um, uh, we have supported this idea of, of, uh, accelerating, intensifying, and deepening our relationships uh, with our partners, allies, and, and friends around the world. Um, so I, yes, I think that, that building on a model that says, uh, that doesn't force a choice for a country that's in a weak economic position, because that's, that, that may be counterproductive, yeah. but clarifying that we're willing to support uh, when it comes to uh, technical assistance to ensure contracts are are in everybody's interest. Um, I think yes. I think that there's room to grow some of the positive elements of of what we've seen over the past four years. So uh, before I let let our uh, our producer Grant have the final question, I want to ask you about one more topic that uh, we've been somewhat focused on at NSI, which is uh, the the changing dynamics of the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. China's got a polar silk road strategy, even mm-hmm. though they're not an Arctic nation. They've been, uh, they've had observer status on the Arctic Council. They've been involved in some decision making. Did, mm-hmm. did the commission take a look at uh, at those issues and and come up with any recommendations? We did last year, 
Uh, we had a hearing on the Arctic, um, and uh, uh, as you know, the as we know, the environmental conditions there are changing. There is um, uh, likely to be more and greater access through straits because of, uh, of, of melting ice, and so that does give China um, uh, an opportunity. Um, they are interested in projecting force around the world, which we did report on this year. Um, I think, again, it, this is a question of collaboration uh, with our close allies. Uh, Canada comes to mind in this instance. And I think this will be an interesting test bed for the relationship between Russia and China, because Russia, of course, claims the Arctic as its own. And so it may be an interesting um, uh, opportunity to, to uh, potentially take advantage of when it comes to this this new relationship between uh, Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi uh, to test um, uh, that relationship, because I think there is some pretty serious competition between the two of them over the resources in the Arctic and, and sort of their geographical claims. So. Grant, what did I forget to ask? I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with us, uh, Dr. Cleveland. I, I really appreciate this conversation uh, and especially the bipartisan nature of the work you do. Uh, it's just so vastly important these days uh, for us to get on the same page when it comes to foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the questions I have is that the report actually devoted a full section to Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we have, um, you know, China is, is putting its hooks into some of our NATO allies in Italy and Hungary. It obviously mm-hmm. has some issues with Australia that have become more in sync mm-hmm. uh, this year. Why the focus on Africa and where, uh, what policies in Africa would give us the most bang for our buck in countering China? Good question. Well, I think we we focused on Africa partly because the multi-layered approach that this, the, the CCP has taken there and, and taken uh, with little attention from the rest of the world. So we've seen political party training over the last uh, decade. We have seen exchange of military officials. We've seen uh, the first visit of the, of the foreign minister each, uh, each time a new foreign minister has been appointed has always been to the continent, sort of signaling China's priority in terms of Africa. And that got our attention. So the political, the security, uh, the debt dynamic uh, was of tremendous concern. The, um, the, the monopoly or the attempt to monopolize resources that are critical to our defense sector was of concern. And, and I think abuse is like um, using American goodwill when we passed the uh, Africa Growth and Opportunity Act to create economic free zones. We saw the CCP moving in and literally transshipping Chinese produced uh, goods through African economic free zones. And that was of concern. And that is one of our recommendations, by the way, that the, the, the administration take or the Congress take a look at ensuring that AGOA is not taken advantage of. So I think political security, economic, commercial interests all dictated that, that Africa is this blueprint and this test bread for, for this new model. And it was of tremendous concern. Great. Robin, 
Thanks very much for, uh, for being on the podcast today. That was really terrific. And thanks for all the work you do on the commission. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate being on and, and having the opportunity to share some of the work that, as I said, terrific staff and wonderful colleagues um, collaborate on. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.